Okay, well, good morning again. It is great to be back with you all. Um, knowing that my illustrations have taken a, a, a turn up in intensity each week, this week we really would have taken a turn if I did the illustrations I wanted to do. So uh, legally, I, we couldn't find the justification to be able to do it. So I'm just going to have to walk you through after we read our passage what the illustration is. And I think you'll understand, uh, although I do think Creighton, there is a good chance that he still would have volunteered to do it. But we'll, we'll see, okay? Uh, just as a, a matter of reminder, we're going to go back to Proverbs 5, because Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7 are very related, right? So they're trying to drive home the same point multiple times. And, you know, if, I, if it wasn't already uncomfortable having to discuss it one time, and as we talk about sexual sin, we've got to do it again this week. But we're going to address it a little bit different. Last time we looked a little bit of the why. Why do we avoid sexual sin? And I'm not going to ask you to remember. I know it was three weeks ago. But, but remember that there is a great debt that sexual sin takes from us. And that is the debt of your honor, your time, your strength, your labors or money, as well as your health and your body. So the reason we avoid these things is because there is a great debt and the ultimate destination, as is the destination of every fool, is the path of death, the destination of death, the destination of hell, if you stay on that path. And we're going to continue to look at a path of foolishness and a path of wisdom. And in Proverbs 7, Solomon builds on this path of folly by giving us a story. Uh, it could have been a true observation, or it could just say, things that he's noticed uh, throughout his time on this earth that he is now relaying in story format to help us understand. So we're going to go a little bit more into a story first, but then as opposed to understanding the why, I want to give you guys some tools as to the how. How do I avoid sexual sin? How do I continue to walk on the path of righteousness, on the path of wisdom? And that's what we're going to explore a little bit more today. So if you have your Bible turned uh, to Proverbs 7, uh, if you're not already there. And the text we're going to study is going to be essentially verses 1 through 5. However, we're going to read verses 6 through uh, 27, which is the end of the chapter. So this is a bit of a long story, but I think we'll be able to read through it quick. So remember again, Solomon is addressing this to his son, but it can just as well be addressed to his daughter. So boys and girls, this applies to all of us, male and female. All right? He is just giving this example of a young boy, young man, that is being lured down the path of foolishness, down the path of folly. He's going to say what that looks like as he's out there observing, and then he's going to say ultimately where it leads. So if you would, in, in honor of the public reading of God's word, let's go ahead and stand. And I'll read verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. So again, Solomon speaking, observing what's going on. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man, or woman, lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you. 
to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to my words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray in her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is God's word. Please be seated. Lord, you have abundant wisdom from your word. It is wisdom that often we know, yet still often we ignore. And Lord, we ignore it at our own folly, at our own great cost. But Father, as we are warned yet once again here from your word, let us consider not just the dangers that uh, await us on the path of foolishness, but give us a heart that desires to walk the path of wisdom, the path of righteousness, the path of life, and let us uh, accept from your word the instruction on how to do this today, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to tie in with the uh, uh, last half of chapter 6, which you guys pulled two great lessons over the past couple weeks from chapter 6. But uh, Solomon does go back to adultery and to sexual sin. We're going to pull some of that uh, as we consider the the theme behind chapters 5, part of 6, and 7. That's why I titled this, this message today, If You Play With Fire, You Will Get Burned. You play with fire, you will get burned. Look back in chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Solomon asks, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So if I would have gotten a volunteer, the big illustration I was going to do was set a log on fire and have you walk, carry it, walking it across the gym. I don't think that would have gone very well. Again, although I think some of you may have been up for it. If I would have even taken it up a notch, I would have had a hotbed of coals and made you walk over top of it barefoot. What is Solomon trying to illustrate here? That flirting with sexual sins, flirting with this path of foolishness, You have as great a chance of being successful doing that, meaning being very close to that temptation and not sinning, as you do is carrying a burning fire, a a burning log next to your chest and walking on a hotbed of coals and not getting burnt. If you think, and I think what Solomon's saying is, if you are so much of a fool that you think you can carry a log that's on fire and walk across hot coals without getting burned... You are just as much of a fool to think that you can flirt with sexual sin and not fall, not, not reap the, not, not deal with the consequences that come with that. I pray that we are not that fool, that we are not 
Uh, as Solomon says in chapter 7, this young man lacking sense. But God does tell us how do we walk. How do we walk to protect ourselves? And that's why the main point today is God's word has given us everything we need to know to walk the path of life, to walk that path of wisdom. Peter tells us God has given us all things for life and godliness. And he gives us those things through his word. Now, I want to be careful that we don't just hear of all the dangers of the sexual sin and and think that, okay, this is just one more thing. I've got to avoid it, right? Again, I've talked to you before about kind of white knuckling. I just need to avoid it. I just can't do this. I know it's going to leave me somewhere bad. Uh, that, that is important. It's important because God's word says it's important. So we do need to, to know those things. But again, there is great beauty. There's also great blessings for uh, obedience. There's great protection lived in a life of obedience. Again, looking back to uh, chapter 6. Uh, in verses uh, 22 and 23, he says, uh, when you walk, they will lead you. So let's go back uh, to 21. And, well, all the way to 20. My son, keep my command, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teach them. Bind them to your heart always. Tie them around your neck. We're going to look at that a little bit closer today, this binding, this, this tying around your neck. So these words, these commandments, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. God has not just given us this instruction because he wants us to live uh, a very limited life. He actually wants us to live a very freeing life. But in God's wisdom, he recognizes that true freedom is found in obedience to him and to his word. It is not found in following the passions of our flesh. Several weeks ago, as I illustrated, as Avalyn walked across here, she kept her eyes going forward. She got where she was going without stumbling, without any issue at all. If she turned to the left or to the right, it became more challenging. And as she turned to look behind her, any obstacles that were in her way, she was going to trip. She was going to fall. And it would be a painful fall. And it will be... Um, much to her shame. But God's word, God's commandments are, are for our good. They are a lamp for our feet, a light to our path. And where do they ultimately lead? They lead to the way of life. And we've got these two paths presented over and over and over again. It was, you, you would think that Solomon thought we were hard of hearing. He knows that we are hard of hearing. Not because we can't actually hear, but because our heart is so hardened to what God is trying to teach us, he hits these points up over and over and over again. And continuing with a fire illustration to just try and drive this home a little bit more. If I started a big bonfire here, you think when you guys have your, your big bonfires or, um, you know, uh, hot dog roast and, and all that kind of stuff. When you start a little fire, I, I enjoy fire. I, I think it's beautiful, right? So we have a lot of fun. It, it warms us well. But once you start a fire, if I gave you a squirt gun, what are your chances of being able to put that fire out? Have to be a pretty big squirt gun, right? Once fire gets started, it is extremely hard to control. And as that fire goes on uh, overnight, you enjoy your bonfire, you leave, you come back the next morning, what do you find? 
Are those logs just sitting there pretty, just like they were before, fresh off the tree? No, there's almost nothing left of them, right? I mean, they're, they're ashes. If you think of a, a raging forest fire, you have this beautiful forest that a fire comes through, it decimates, it destroys it all. You're left with ash and dust and char, where what used to be was beauty and perfection is now destroyed. Fire is a powerful illustration, one that if I was more creative, we would have been able to incorporate some way, but give me some more time, maybe we'll figure that out. But let's think of that fire, but let's not just think of the dangers that sexual sin can cause, also think of the blessings of the protection that it comes with obedience. So we understand the why. Uh, Solomon's laid that out for us well. So today we're going to spend most of our time trying to understand the how. How do I avoid sexual sin? How do I continue to walk on this path of wisdom, the path that leads to life? Verses 1 through 4 give us uh, a lot of great wisdom. We're going to look at six different words that Solomon uses. These are six different verbs he gives us, right? Verbs are an action thing, right? What can we do? What can we know? What can we think in order to have success, in order to avoid this path of folly? All right, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're going to pick out these words. We're going to do a bit of a word study today. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep... Keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. So you guys can fill in the blanks. The six words we're going to look at today are keep, treasure, bind, and I'll repeat these if you don't get them, write, say, and call. We're going to unpack these more, so for those of you who like taking notes, you can Uh, We're going to dig into them deeper, but just so you didn't try and miss them if I don't highlight it as well. But keep, treasure, bind, write, say, and call. Now, all six of these words have a lot of similarities, and all six of them are going to continue to kind of build on this point. But for the most part, Solomon is kind of pairing two, two, and two. All right? Keep and treasure, bind and write, say and call. So if you just kind of draw little arrows, linking those two words up. Keep and treasure, bind and write, say and call. All right, let's first look at keep. Keep is written uh, several times here. Keep my words. Keep my commandments. Keep my teaching. What's Solomon talking about when he says keep? Keep, you could think of, he wants you to store up, or I think even better, guard. He wants you to guard these words. He wants you to keep them at the center of your thinking, the center of your your heart. He wants you to make them the most important words, the most important instruction that you can imagine. And he gives the illustration of keeping this teaching as the apple of your eye. 
That's a reference or an idiom that we may not completely understand because we don't say that too often now. Uh, that's a few generations past where you consider somebody the apple of your eye. But apple, you could very well put in there pupil, the pupil of my eye. Does everybody know what the pupil is? The pupil's that small black area within your eye. The eye is a fascinating structure. The eye is the second most complex organ in your entire body. Does anybody know what the most complex structure is, organ? What controls the eye? You're pointing to it. Your brain, yes. Your brain is the most complex organ, second only to your eye. And I could go off on a tangent on the eye, uh, but it's fascinating that uh, many an evolutionist, many a people that don't believe in God, struggle to, to verify their evolutionary theory because of the eye alone. The eye is so complex to think that it happened over millions, even trillions of years, just naturally evolved to something like that, for us who believe in God and creation, would be utter nonsense. But even they say, we can't exactly figure out how the eye could have possibly came to be because it is so complex. And when we look at the eye, the pupil at the very most center aspect is protected from everything else, and I would dare say is the most important structure within your eye. Does anybody know what the pupil is responsible for? What's the pupil's function? Anybody? Letting light in. Letting light in. Or, what else does it do? Keep light out. Right? It lets light in or it keeps light out. So if there is too much light, your pupil constricts to only allow a certain amount of light come in. Or if there's not enough light, it opens up so that more light can come in so that you can see an image better. If it, your pupil is not working, it only takes your pupil not working and you can't see. If your pupil is too constricted, you can't let enough light in and it's darkness, you can't see. If your pupil is dilated or, or too wide, it allows too much light to come in and you can't see. All you see is brightness. You can't see, you can't make out any structures. So Solomon's using this idea of the apple of your eye, the pupil of your eye, of the center most, the most important. If that's not working, if that's not front and center, nothing else is going to be working. So like we want to protect our eyes, we want to guard these words, guard this instruction. We want to store it up. We want to keep it and value it, which is why he links that in keeping in with treasure. We are to, uh, what's he say, uh, treasure up my commandments within you. Jesus uses the same language in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is telling us that whatever we treasure, that's what our heart is truly going to be going after. Whatever we treasure, that's what our, it's going to reveal what's actually in our heart. So that begs us to ask ourselves, what do we care for? What do we value? Or as Solomon's saying, what do we treasure? Do you treasure the uh, temporary pleasures that you would get in this world, fleshly desires, or do you treasure Jesus? Your actions will reveal that. Your actions will reveal whether you truly treasure Jesus more than anything else. Do you truly treasure Jesus more than your friends 
or your phone or school or work, whatever it may be, or do you treasure Jesus above all those things? Your actions will reveal that. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. The next two words Solomon gives us is bind and write. Bind uh, is used, uh, uh, we looked at it in Proverbs 6. Solomon uses it also in Proverbs 3.3. 3. He says, bind them around your neck, bind the instruction, bind the uh, commandments uh, around your neck. Similarly, he says, write. Now, in, in Solomon's time, writing was a very labor-intensive and costly process. We probably don't think much of anything. But when Solomon was teaching, I guarantee he did not have 40 people in front of him who, who were all there able to write this down on a piece of paper that's probably going to get thrown away on your way out, or if you make me feel good, at least make it home before you throw it away. In Solomon's day, only the, the, the wealthiest people or the people who had wealth that could have others write for them, A, even knew how to write, but B, had the means to be able to write, to have a piece of parchment, to have a quill or pen that they could write these things on. People didn't just write things down left and right whenever they wanted. They weren't doodling on their hands in the middle of class, all right? It was very costly uh, to write, and people uh, many times couldn't. So what Solomon is trying to tell us here is the similar language of binding or writing is very labor-intensive, and it is costly. Are you willing to go to the lengths that it takes to bind God's word on your heart, to, to write God's word on your heart. Keep it before you always. Or are you, do you see God's word as cheap, as uh, freely just available and just doing similar to what you do to the handouts, you can just throw it away? Or do you hold on to it? Again, building on that language of keeping and treasuring. That work you do to bind it, to write it. Do you actually value it? Are you actually going through the work that it takes in order to make the words you know and write them permanently on your heart so that they can help keep you on this path of wisdom, on this path of life? And then finally, the words say and call. Now, these are uh, interesting terms. He's talking about very close personal relationships. So, so when he says here, say to wisdom, you are my sister, uh, and call to insight your intimate friend. He's trying to relationally help us uh, pull together this idea of wisdom and a close personal relationship. Now, some of you may not be as close to your sister or your brother. Um, it may be in this season of life. Uh, many of you will find later on in life that you do form a deeper relationship, but maybe even if you want to say your close personal friend, that best friend that you have in life, do you know God's word as well as you know your best friend? Do you call God's word your friend? Or is it something you're ashamed of? Is it something that you're like, yeah, I kind of know that on Sunday mornings or, or Wednesday nights, but... Monday through Friday when I'm at school, I, I pretend like I don't know God. I pretend I don't know Jesus. I pretend that uh, I don't know what God has to say about this or what God has to say about that. I, I want to live within my own wisdom. I want to live within the wisdom of others. Or are you willing to say and stand up and say, no, I know what God says and I care about what God says as much as I care about my sister or my brother or I care about my best friend? 
Are you willing to hold these things as close to you as you do a close relationship? Is that your desire? Is it, if you haven't read your Bible in a couple days, does it give you that same longing as you haven't seen your friend for several days or several weeks or several months? You may have a friend that's moved away and you get back together and you get to spend some time with them. And uh, I think most of you will be very excited leading up to it. You'll enjoy your time together with them. And then even after they leave, you'll be sad that they're, they have left, but you'll still think back fondly with the memories that you had with them. Does, God, does God's word give you that much excitement that I'm going to read my Bible today? Does God's word gives you that much comfort while you're reading it, just like a friend who's comforting you? Does God's word carry with you day in and day out, even when you don't have it straight in front of you, that you're constantly thinking, oh man, I just remember what God taught me and how I got to know him better, just like I did a dear friend or a dear family member? Or is it something that you take for granted and just say, yeah, you know, I've heard that once, but I don't really care. I don't have a desire to get to know God better, a desire to study God's word any better. I love these six words is keep, treasure, bind, write, say, and call, because again, they are active things. Again, we're talking about the how. These are things we can do. A lot of times uh, in, in my past several weeks, we've talked about what do I need to be thinking? Right? We, we looked at the model of the heart. The model of the heart is our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. We've studied the thinking quite a bit. We've studied to some degree the, the feelings that come with right thinking or right doing. But now we're kind of talking about this doing. What do I need to do to stay on this path of wisdom, to stay on this path of life? Well, Solomon tells us we have to keep it. We have to treasure it. We need to bind and write and say and call. And he needs to remind us of these things over and over and over again, which is why we see this language used over and over and over again. So I just want to spend a few moments here doing these, uh, these questions to ask yourself. Try to make them penetrate and try to challenge you guys to apply some of these things as we think them through. A lot of times these questions to ask yourselves are things for you to do uh, off on your own. I do want you to continue with them uh, day in and day out this week. But let's ask ourselves together and just even think that through. The first question, do I treasure Jesus more than anything else? Do I treasure Jesus more than anything else? And of course you have to ask yourself, why or why not? Is there something in your life that you treasure that you want to keep, you want to store or guard more than Jesus. Maybe there's a relationship that you want to keep more than you want to keep Jesus. Maybe there's a relationship you treasure, you see some good in it. You like the way that it makes you feel. You like the experiences you get to have. But do you want that relationship more than you want Jesus? I think there's, the Bible uses language of idols, not language we oftentimes use day in and day out. Idol is anything we worship more than Jesus. And if you're holding on to something, if you're treasuring something, if you're protecting something, a relationship or anything else, more than you're treasuring and protecting and loving Jesus, it has become an idol. You're actually loving it more than you are loving Jesus. 
And sometimes it can be hard for us to figure out, well, is that really an idol in my life? Do I really worship that more? Do I really want that more than I want Jesus? And, and that can be a hard question for us to answer. You're in luck because I think I have some penetrating questions, that, uh, thoughts that may help you think through. Do I want this relationship or this thing more than I want Jesus? So I want all of you to think of maybe, whether it's a relationship or a thing, Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a car, maybe it's money, whatever it may be. I want you to think of a thing that you like, that you desire. Maybe it's a, a, a sports team or uh, a certain position on a baseball team or a certain position in the choir, whatever you do. Think of something, you can think it in your mind or you can write it down. And then I want to ask you, is it something you would sin to get? Or... Will you sin if you don't get it? Whatever you're thinking in your mind, is this something, if I don't get it, I'm going to sin? Or in order for me to get it, I'm going to sin? Right? We all know sin, missing the mark, disobeying God's commands. Right? So just, just have, a, have a moment of introspection and this one thing. Because there's a lot of things in our lives that are very good things. And they're right things for us to want and desire. Nothing wrong with wants and desires. Many wants and desires are given to us by God. But God never calls us to sin to get them or sin if we don't get them. And if we've sinned to get it or sin if we don't get it, it is obvious that now that has become an idol in our heart. We are now worshiping it more than we are worshiping God. Some things can be very attractive to us, whether it's a person or an object or a, or a, a position, anything. Think all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first sin, right? That apple was not rotten. That apple didn't have worms coming out of it. It was beautiful. It was uh, appealing to the eye. It looked good for the eating. It was the image. It was the, that was the draw of it. And Eve used that wisdom of, well, it looks good, and I desire it, I'm hungry, therefore I'm going to do it. She went against, and Adam went against, what God had said, because they said, I want that more than I want obedience to God. I am going to sin to get it. And then, interesting enough, they sinned when they well, they, they did get it, but then they sinned in response to how they tried to cover it up and, and deal with it and blame each other or blame Satan. Now, God gives us a great promise that there is no temptation that is overcoming us except which is common to man. God is faithful. He has given us a way of escape. So even those things that look good, even those desires that are very deep, he, working through his spirit, gives us all that we need in order to say no to those things, to treasure Jesus more than I treasure anything else. So has something in your life become an idol? Are you sinning to get it or sinning if you don't get it? Building on that to help us develop the why some more, what am I doing to keep God's word in front of me at all times? What am I doing to, to bind God's word? What am I doing to write God's word on my heart? What's my Bible study time look like? Am I even reading my Bible? Is Sunday morning and Wednesday nights the only times that I'm opening God's Word? 
Sadly, many of us, that, that is the only time when we're even considering godly things. How's my prayer life? Am I constantly going before God, not just asking for him to do something for me, but going before him in adoration for who he is, thankful for who he is, confessing my sin? Am I confessing to God my sin? Am I confessing to God that, yeah, God, I do have an idol in my life. There are things that I am sinning to get or sinning if I don't get. Are we asking God for forgiveness for those things? If you're not in prayer, you're not going to be doing those things. So what are you doing to keep God's word in front of you? Are you studying God's word daily? Are you praying daily? Are you doing things like writing little note cards of verses that you can hide in your heart so that you may not sin against God, so that you won't elevate something to an idol? Do you have it before you when you brush your teeth in the morning or uh, on your way to school on your dashboard if you drive? Do you have it written on your, say, phones or, or day planners or something like that? Little verses that can help point you to truth. Truth of who God is or truth of how he's called you to live. Three by five note cards, still pretty cheap, way cheaper than an iPhone, all right? Little ways that you can keep God's word constantly around you. Uh, I hate when my kids like write or doodle on their hands, but if they doodle the verse, I'd probably be okay with it because they're keeping it in front of them. And going all the way back to Old Testament type of language, that's kind of the language they're trying to uh, remind us of here, of putting it like a front between your eyes and just like you would adorn yourself with jewelry. What are you doing to keep God's word in front of you at all times? And finally, how well do you actually know what God says? Are you a close personal friend to God and his word? Do you know God like you know your best friend? You probably know what your best friend likes to eat, what they like to drink, whether they're a morning person or evening person. You know what sports they like to watch or not watch. You know what shows. You may know their favorite movie, their favorite color, their favorite food, all of these kind of things. Do you know God's favorites? Do you know what, how God would want you to live? Do you know what, God, what makes God happy? Do you know what makes God sad? And if you don't, why don't you know those things? If we say we treasure God, but then don't actually get to know him, who of you has a friend that you would call your best friend that you don't know anything about? You don't know their favorite color. You don't know what kind of food they like. What kind of friend are you if you don't know anything about that person? Many of us in here will call Jesus, will call God our friend, yet we know very little about him. And it goes back to, what are we doing? Are we keeping, are we treasuring, are we buying and writing, are we studying? The other thing I want to challenge you with within this question is, you are presented day in and day out with a lot of wisdom. But it's not biblical wisdom. It's certainly not God's wisdom. Are, do you know other people's wisdom better than you know God's wisdom. Or said another way, when you're, when you're facing a problem, a situation, do you first say, I wonder what my friend thinks about that, and go ask them? Or maybe best case scenario, you say, what do my parents say? So I want to go get their advice. 
That is a great idea. Please do that, okay? But that still shouldn't be our first inclination. That shouldn't be our first move. Our first move should not be to say, I'm going to go talk to another person and see what they think. Our first thought should be, what does God think? What does God say? We've defined wisdom over and over again as worshiping God through rightly applying whose truths? A person's truths? No, rightly applying God's truths to everyday life. And so if we are walking through life day in and day out and not even asking ourselves, what does God say about this? And how do we know what God says about anything? The Bible. Right. Don't make me sing it, okay? So the Bible is where we know what God says and what God thinks. We're not going to go outside and listen to the wind and hear him speak, all right? But we can read God's word and we can know what he thinks and what he says about everything you need to know to live a life of godliness. There is nothing that God has been quiet on that he has not given you through his word. And uh, I I love the saying that if God were to still speak today, he would say nothing different uh, or in addition to or less than he has already said in his word. God has given us everything that we need, yet we sadly do not go to his word to answer the biggest questions we have in life or the biggest challenges that are facing us day in and day out. Yet we are quick, like the fool, to go ask another fool what I should do about this. Uh, I want to challenge you guys as much as I possibly can in the small amount of time that, that I've had with you in these few weeks. You will be a fool if you continue to ask other fools for advice and wisdom. Now, within godly counsel, God does give us each other in order to help answer these questions, all right? But we have to approach that very carefully because someone else particularly someone else who is not a follower of Jesus is not going to have God's wisdom. And if it's not God's wisdom, he tells us it's foolishness. And yet day in and day out, many of you, I won't call names, I don't know all of you well, but many of you ask other fools for advice. And I use that term strongly because I believe God's word, Solomon and Proverbs uses that word to describe exactly what you're doing when you're seeking advice, seeking counsel from other people, other ungodly people in particular, right? So God has given you many good people. He's given us your pastors, your elders, your small group leaders, many other adults that are very wise, even though they in and of themselves are, are not wise. And yet you will go to people that, again, the Bible calls fools to help you process and think through some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now. I want to urge you with whatever influence I have, don't do that. They will lead you just like the young man, the, the, the lacking sense in Proverbs 7, was led to the path of death, to the path of Sheol. I've seen it over and over and over again. And Solomon warns us over and over again, don't follow that. Don't follow the fool. In here, the fool is a prostitute that will lead us. But in so many areas of our lives, we follow fools. 
don't do it. Follow God, follow his wisdom, follow the godly people that God has put in your life. Ask yourself first and foremost, when you're facing a tough situation or even an easy situation, what does God say? And as you grow and as you mature in Christ, you will get better and better at that. Number one, you'll know faster what God says, but he also, as you know more of what God says and you're amazed at what he says and his wisdom, your heart will be turned more and more to want to know even more. You won't be going to some friend uh, that doesn't have God's answers. You'll be turning, opening God's word. You'll be asking other godly people for right answers. Many of us need to be asking much more, not what does this person say or what does that person say, but what does God say? And then we need to search from scripture for the answers. Well, I've enjoyed my time with you guys covering some pretty weighty and heavy topics. These not are easy or light things. Uh, I am still going to continue to offer, uh, if you would like to study God's word about a particular issue, again, uh, biblical counseling is not just for adults. It is for everyone, right? Biblical counseling is, again, just a practical theology. It is a pursuit of wisdom. It is pursuing the worship of God through applying his truths to everyday life. So if you're having struggles, you can obviously talk to Pastor Scott and the other pastors or elders to, to your life group leaders uh, or myself, and, and we can get you plugged in and help you see from Scripture what God says. Let me close this. Father, uh, your wisdom uh, is described uh, in so many powerful ways. It is Wonderful, Lord, you, you are the perfect and, and wonderful counselor. Uh, your wisdom is so far above anything that myself and even Pastor Scott and uh, anyone else can possibly fully comprehend. But we recognize that you have still worked in imperfect people to bring about uh, the proclamation of your truth. Uh, so, Father, I, I pray for... Uh, each and every uh, young man and woman here, Lord, that they will just be captivated by your wisdom, not by my wisdom, not by any pithy sayings or illustrations, but by the wisdom you have revealed to us through your word. Let that word uh, penetrate deep into our hearts. Let it open our ears and our eyes so that we may see and rightly discern the path of foolishness. Let us not be, as we hear described, in chapter 7, a young man or woman lacking sense. But give us great wisdom, wisdom that can only come from you. Let our hearts be transformed by it and lead us on the path of wisdom and life every day. In your name we pray. Amen.